a quick place to pick up some of your favorite keto foods like Primal Kitchen Mayo, coconut milk, almond butter, MCT oil, and sea salt at the best prices possible? Then head on over to thrivemarket.com keto to fill your low-carb, high-fat needs all in one place. Thrive Market sells the very best ketogenic-friendly brands at wholesale prices, so you're not spending your whole paycheck to get what you really want. Because they work directly with their members and cut out the middlemen, they can pass on the very best savings to you. I love that they donate a complimentary membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher for each new member who joins the Thrive Market family. I've hand-selected 25 of my favorite low-carb, high-fat products that I think you're going to love too. For you, my listeners, you'll get 25% off your first purchase, plus free shipping, plus a free 30-day trial of Thrive Market to see for yourself what an amazing way to shop keto this is. Don't forget, the prices are already 25 to 50% below retail, so you get these things as an added value. So go to thrivemarket.com keto to take advantage of this exclusive offer for fans of my podcast, Thrive Market. America has a new favorite protein bar, and it's the chocolate chip cookie dough bar from Quest Nutrition. Each Quest bar contains 21 grams of protein, is packed with 14 grams of fiber, and has just one gram of sugar. Visit their website, questnutrition.com, to find their full selection of bars, shakes, chips, and more. And coming soon, don't miss the special keto line of products that have been under development for the past two years. Again, give them a try at questnutrition.com. Coming up in episode 1281, Dr. Jeff Volan. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author you're like the LL Cool J of podcasting Jimmy Moore Today's featured audio is from the 2016 Low Carb USA Conference that took place in San Diego, California. Go to lowcarbusa.org to get more information about this year's event coming up August 3rd through the 6th, 2017. I've been in this business for a while and uh went down many paths in terms of studying different aspects of ketogenic diets. So I will focus most of my talk today on the performance applications, but I do want to provide a bit of background before we we get to the exercise uh, piece of ketosis. So I will provide a little history. I think most of you are pretty well versed in the in the uh, dietary guidelines and the fact that we've went down this pretty dangerous path of a low-fat diet, but I I do love this quote from Charles Darwin because it really points out the fact that recognizing we've made an error uh, is just as important as discovering the truth. And in that regard, I'm very active in trying to change the way we feed Americans, and I've been very involved in advocacy efforts and changing the dietary guidelines, and that's no small task. <laughs> A lot of bureaucracy and, and politics involved. So I, I will just let, review that very quickly. Uh, but this idea of insulin resistance, this is the real problem we have in this country. And at risk of oversimplifying insulin resistance, it's not inaccurate to consider it carbohydrate intolerance. And when you view it from that perspective, uh, the solution's pretty obvious how we manage this chronic problem that's afflicting over half the population. And that it's really overconsumption of carbohydrate that is the primary driver, not just a mediator, but in fact the driver of the vast majority of chronic disease in this country. And finally that nutritional ketosis is a potent therapy for restoring metabolic health, counteracting insulin resistance, and even enhancing many types of performance. 
So again, real quick here, uh, because you guys are way smarter than the average person, but you, you've heard about this history. You've, Gary Taubes dissected this to death, but it's worth pointing out for those that may not be familiar. This goes back to the 60s. Ansel Keys and his ideas that dietary fat and dietary saturated fat in particular drove up cholesterol levels and increased risk of heart disease was really the basis for this path we went down on low-fat diets. And that resulted in the first dietary guidelines in 1980. And it's been the cornerstone of the guidelines all the way up to today. The last guidelines published in 2015 still promote the idea that low-fat diets are healthy and that fat is the villain and the problem uh, behind all our uh, obesity, diabetes, heart disease in this country and this planet. And this was highly reinforced by many other events going on throughout the 90s and 2000 and to this day. We have uh, the emergence of the megastatin trials, which really, they what was used as reinforcement for the idea that blood cholesterol is a risk factor for heart disease and lowering it would improve risk of morbidity, mortality. And we had a, a whole surge of products on the market that were lower in fat and fat-free. Now, I want to draw the analogy here with the dietary guidelines that are more or less the guidelines for what the average person should consume with sports nutrition guidelines because it's, it's, it's pretty interesting how closely they parallel and reinforce each other. So if you go back to the 60s and 70s, you had Scandinavian Swedish researchers that were beginning to discover muscle glycogen and the importance of of that metabolite in endurance performance. And they're the ones that discovered carbohydrate loading. They did some nice experiments. They overinterpreted and overgeneralized those findings and kind of uh, relegated low-carb ketogenic diets um, because they were associated with impaired performance, but they were very short-term. They never allowed these athletes to adapt. But this really dawned the era of the high-carb supremacy for, for athletes. And just like we had you know, a lot of uh, events occurring uh, for the dietary guidelines that promoted them, you also had things like the Gatorade Sports Science Institute developed and the emergence of a multi-billion dollar sport beverage industry that was promoting sugar water as ergogenic for athletes that really reinforced this paradigm too. So in many ways, these, these two guidelines for the average non-athlete and athletes were very highly reinforcing, even though they more or less developed independently. But at the end of the day, here we are, 2016, you've got a lot of Americans who are overweight, obese, suffering uh, from carbohydrate intolerance. You've also got a lot of athletes who are not real happy with their performance and with their health. Despite being incredibly active, you can still develop prediabetes and diabetes, and a lot of athletes are, are struggling with that. And they're turning to low-carb, high-fat diets. Uh, and in many ways, this is the world turned upside down for the average consensus leaders and followers out there. And I thought this quote was relevant uh, the, from Bertrand Russell um, to kind of just explain how could we let this flawed paradigm perpetuate for 40 or 50 years and this is not unusual in history when you uh, and you can read through this um, this quote. Uh, we often promote silly ideas and think they're true, and I think that's still going on because of conferences like this and a lot of great scientists and practitioners out there. We're very quickly um, changing that. So. Um, you know the diet hard hypothesis. This this hypothesis has more holes in it than Swiss cheese. There's been billions of dollars thrown at research to try to prove this hypothesis, and they've all failed. So we really need to, to disband this idea. But it hasn't been you know just a bad idea. It's had unintended consequences. So because we've instilled this fear of fat in in people, uh, it's resulted in an overconsumption of carbohydrate by the vast majority of the population. And that's clearly not benign. That's the driving force behind metabolic syndrome or prediabetes and diabetes, which is in turn 
increasing risk for many other chronic diseases. And just acutely, though, increasing carbs, it decreases our ability to burn fat. And increasingly, we're recognizing being able to to oxidize fat is fundamental to good health and performance. And then you all know the statistics. They're dismal. But if, if you're not up to date on the latest statistics, two out of three or maybe th- closer to three out of four adults are, in fact, overweight, struggling with their, with their weight. That's the new normal. That, I mean, that's staggering when you think the average person now is, is unhealthy and overweight. And about one in three are obese. But perhaps even more disturbing is uh, diabetes. Uh, this was the latest statistics that I'm aware of from JAMA last year showing one in two adults have prediabetes. Half the population is prediabetic. Again, I mean, think about that for a minute. The average person now is prediabetic based on A1C or glucose. This was a very well-done study using data from NHANES. And, of course, there's personal suffering that's associated with diabetes and prediabetes. But beyond that, there's a huge economic Burden. We spend today about $340 billion managing diabetes alone. And that's expected to, to increase dramatically over the next several years. Uh, so there's, you know, this huge burden on our healthcare system that would bankrupt most developing countries and will bankrupt our country if we don't do something about it. And the consensus in the medical community is that diabetes is a chronic, progressive disease that can't be reversed. And that is, uh, that's what most of the experts will tell you. Maybe we can slow it down if you pump people full of drugs. But we know there's side effects to the drugs and they're relatively impotent. Uh, but clearly you can reverse diabetes with the appropriate diet. Um, and just to uh, show you some actual data, though, on how we've changed our dietary patterns, um, we've actually decreased our fat intake like we've been told for 40 or 50 years. Protein's been pretty stable, but clearly the most salient change has been this market rise in carbohydrate. And this ain't spinach and broccoli, right, folks? This is a lot of added sugar and and processed carbohydrates that are having a significant toll on the body. So the way I look at all of this uh, is it's incredibly complex, but we have this problem of insulin resistance in this country. And insulin resistance, if you study it at the cellular level, will just give you a huge headache. It's incredibly complex, multifactorial, uh, but in its essence, it's a form of carbohydrate intolerance. That's one of the manifestations. You don't metabolize carbs well. Your cells are resistant to the effects of insulin in terms of taking up blood sugar. And the point of putting it on a continuum here is that the population varies tremendously in the level of insulin resistance or the level of carb tolerance or the level of carbs that they can tolerate. When I think about this, I really like to to view it through a metabolic lens. Uh, As humans, we can either burn carbs or fat. And as long as you're eating carbs, your body's oxidizing them because we can't store them in great quantities. So we, we put them at the front of the line. They get burned first. So as, soon as, as long as you eat carbs, you're almost forcing your body into a dependency on those carbs. However, if you restrict carbs, the body dramatically shifts over to burning fat. And this fundamentally is what happens on a low-carb diet. It's by far the most potent way in which to change the body's cellular fuel use over to fat. And that's true if you're a diabetic. It's true if you're an elite athlete. And I'll show you data on that. Restricting carbs is, is more potent than any drug, any type of exercise, any type of supplement in terms of promoting this shift over to burning fatty acids and ketones for fuel. I use the word keto adaptation or fat adaptation to describe the vast... Uh, physiologic process of adapting to this, and it, it does involve a lot of different cellular systems. But in general, what we're understanding now is that switching over to fat, keto adapting, is associated with robust improvements in a variety of chronic diseases, as well as uh, promoting enhanced 
performance and recovery and resiliency in athletes. So that's the paradigm. And ketogenic diets, again, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because normally when I'm talking to dietitians like I was last week, you have to spend an hour describing what a ketogenic diet is and how it's different than other approaches. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions that ketogenic diets are high protein uh, and so forth. They're not. They're, they're low in carbs, but they're also moderate in protein. They're not too low to induce negative nitrogen balance. They're not high either. They're sort of a Goldilocks state where protein needs to be. And that's different than all these other types of diet, including other low-carb diets like paleo or Mediterranean diets that are restricted in carbs, but not enough to induce ketosis. So as humans, uh, we don't store a lot of carbs. um, And we store very little in our blood. Uh, How much glucose do we have in our blood? We've... Again, you guys are way smarter than the average person. So if we had a way to extract all that glucose out, it's one or two teaspoons. And and if we look at just a normal meal, the average person consumes, uh, you know, this is not unusual. Uh, have a bagel and a latte with low-fat latte uh, at uh, Starbucks. You, you know, just for perspective, you may have ten times as much carbs in that meal as you do in your blood. So that puts a stress on the body. How does, how does the body deal with that? Because we don't like to have high blood sugar, right? So, again, just a little metabolism here. won't go too far. But the normal way the body is developed, uh, has evolved to um, handle that glucose load is to, to take it up into skeletal muscle primarily through an insulin-mediated process. And if that's working properly, if you're insulin-sensitive, um, that's how we dispose of the majority of that blood sugar. And eventually we oxidize it or burn it. We may store it as glycogen temporarily. And that's fine. There are people out there that do this really well. It's maybe about a quarter of the population, though. However, if you have insulin resistance, if you're diabetic or pre-diabetic or overweight, you likely have this carbohydrate intolerance where a greater proportion of that incoming glucose is being taken up by the liver where it's converted to fat. You convert dietary carbohydrate into fat. That process is called de novo lipogenesis. It involves synthesizing a saturated fat, putting it into a triglyceride, a VLDL particle, and that gets released into the blood. That's what you measure when you have high triglycerides in the blood. And this happens very early on. This is an acute phenomenon where if you're constantly eating carbs, you're constantly contributing to this increase in fat production and fat in the blood. It's like the canary in the mine shaft that's telling you, hey, you're over-consuming carbs relative to fat. And it's increasing saturated fat levels in the blood and causing a lot of collateral damage in the body. So this is a form of carbohydrate intolerance. And there are a lot of signs of carbohydrate intolerance. It's not easy to measure conversion of carbs to fat in the body unless you have access to stable isotopes and mass specs. Um, So these are some other signs and symptoms, and I won't go through these in depth, but there's a lot of, uh, of, of... of markers here that I think many of you can relate to uh, that uh, are pretty widely present in, in, in the population, suggesting there's a lot of people with carb intolerance. So ketosis, and again, you can go through this fast because you guys are, are way ahead of the curve on these things. But in a carb-fed state, ketones are very low. Everyone's producing them. This is an ancient metabolic pathway that was incredibly important during evolution and and the um, emergence of Homo sapiens with big brains. Um, And amazingly, this pathway has remained intact throughout evolution. It's just been silenced because we're eating all this carbohydrate. But it's still there. We have all the enzymes and all the capabilities of producing ketones, even in a type 2 diabetic. It's just that the ketone levels are really low. This software program is just sitting there dormant. When you restrict carbs, it reawakens, and you boot that program up, even if you're a diabetic, if you're an athlete, same thing. Ketones rise. Um, And it goes up about an order of magnitude. So from 0.1 to 1 millimolar, maybe up to 3 or 4. That's the range of nutritional ketosis, say 0.5 to 3 or 4, maybe 5 millimolar. Uh, 
Um, the key point here is that's very different than ketoacidosis, where levels are an order of magnitude higher than what you see in nutritional ketosis, 20 millimolar or higher. That is dangerous, life-threatening, but thankfully, we have negative feedback systems. The average person who's not insulin insufficient or type 1 diabetic doesn't have to worry at all about reaching ketoacidosis. And we know a lot about ketone metabolism. This goes back to the 60s. So this is 50-year-old knowledge. It's just not in the textbooks and it's not taught to physicians or dietitians or any healthcare professionals. But it's, 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 this knowledge has been known. Uh, you know, we learn that the brain is a glucose-dependent organ, but George Cahill, through some very elegant, invasive experiments, showed the brain, in fact, can adapt to using ketones. About two-thirds of the energy can come from ketones. And the brain's burning about 600 kcals per day, folks, so it's burning about one-third of your, one-fourth of your energy, total energy expenditure. So it's a very energetically active organ. Um, so we can dramatically reduce the requirements for glucose when you're in a keto-adapted state. And what this means, really, is that uh, the brain uh, can, it's, the brain is protected from episodes of low blood sugar, hypoglycemia. And Cahill did this absolutely phenomenal experiment that, um, that wouldn't even be allowed, you wouldn't be allowed to do this experiment today because of IRBs and, and ethical reasons. They, they took a group of people they had starved for three to four weeks, healthy people, put them in ketosis, so they're pretty high here, five millimolar, and then asked the question, what would happen if we intentionally drove down their blood sugar? And to do that, they infused insulin into their veins. And, of course, insulin dr drives the blood sugar into the cells, so you're not surprisingly, the blood sugar, which was normal, went down to a remarkable 20, 25 milligrams per deciliter on average. They talked about some people going down as low as 9. This would put just about anybody into a coma, right? And what was you know, so remarkable about this experiment was these people had no signs or symptoms of hypoglycemia. They were functioning cognitively and physically perfectly fine. Now this is, this is really neat because this explains a lot of the perceived benefit you get from a ketogenic diet. It also explains why athletes become bonk-proof and don't hit the wall. Because hitting the wall is really your brain in an energy crisis where you don't have an adequate supply of glucose. But if glucose is in short supply, no problem. The brain's well fed. Uh, so that's not just relevant to athletes. I think a lot of people are mini-bonking during the day after they eat carbs and then they're tired an hour or two later. When you're keto-adapted, that, that goes away. And this is partly why. This is some of the physiology. So um, that's known. And what I wanted to, to just point out um, is that, that we've known about that. What's newer, though, about ketones and beta-hydroxybutyrate in particular, the primary ketone, is that it does much more than serve as an alternative fuel for the brain. You probably heard about this um, yesterday, perhaps by Dr. Diagostino, who's been doing a lot of great work in this area. But ke the ketones are now recognized to be potent signaling molecules, which opens up a whole new perspective on how keto adaptation may be affecting health and performance. So as the, the abstract here states, uh, ketones are acting as signaling molecules. Specifically, this, this was worked out in a paper published in Science in 2012. So pretty high-level journal. They did some really elegant experiments. And they worked out the mechanism and showed that, in, in, a, in a nutshell, that beta-hydroxybutyrate was a potent signaling molecule that upregulates antioxidant genes that in turn protect the body against oxidative stress. And of course they worked out the mechanism too, being a science paper, it was a potent histone deacetylase inhibitor. And, you know, it's not so important you know what that is, but these HDAC, HDACs are really um, hot topics right now in terms of trying to develop drugs to inhibit them. And here we have a metabolite that is a potent inhibitor. So, in essence, we have a diet now that's, have, that's increasing a metabolite that's having drug-like effects in the body. And there's other work showing ketones are, 
are signaling certain transcription factors that uh, inhibit inflammation. There's work showing that beta-hydroxybutyrate is hitting a lot of the same cellular pathways. It's mimicking a lot of the effects of caloric restriction that have been shown to be associated with anti-aging or increased longevity. So this is really exciting. There were two papers published last year showing, um, one in worms showing that when they were fed ketones, they lived 26% longer, and one in um, uh, accelerated model of aging in rodents that uh, when they were fed ketones, they, they lived longer. So that's really exciting. Uh, but, you know, most of the work that's been done starting in about 2000 when, when I got into this area, and there was me and Eric Westman, and, you know, there were people predated us like Jackie Eberstein and Mike and Mary Eads who were out there practicing low-carb diets and promoting it. But the research really started in 2000, or I should say the resurgence in research, because there's a whole lot of research back before the 70s. And realize now, so we're wrapping up a remarkable decade and a half of research on, on low-carb diets. And now we have review papers, systematic reviews, meta-analysis, that very clearly and consistently show low-carb diets do better than low-fat diets. We don't have two or five or ten papers now. We have hundreds of papers, literally, that support this approach. So there's a critical mass. I think weight loss, though, is the tip of the iceberg because there's so many metabolic benefits that um, uh, include diabetes and because insulin resistance is really the, the cardinal feature of, of diabetes. And that's what I'm really excited about because it's such a huge problem. And we had data out there like this work from Gumbiner going back to the 90s where they were looking at you know very well-controlled studies here, metabolic ward, short-term studies that looked at very low-calorie diets. One was ketogenic, one was non-ketogenic, and looked at its effects on glycemic control and hepatic glucose output. And they showed the ketogenic low-calorie diet was much more effective than um, than the low-calorie non-ketogenic diet. And in, interestingly, they, they were doing some nice tracer work here and actually showed the ketogenic diet decreased hepatic glucose output and that the ketones were correlated with the extent of hepatic glucose output inhibition. So again, really evidence here, ketones are, are really important in eliciting this positive effect in, in diabetics. And there are, there's the work from Bowden, too, that confirmed this. And that's been out there, but you know, a lot of the resistance I get now is, well, this is fine, but and ketogenic diets certainly work, but nobody can stay on them long term. But we have papers like uh, like the Dashti work, where that is from Kuwait, that in my mind is one of the better studies because they really did understand the diet. It's well formulated ketogenic diet, so it's easier for people to follow and sustain. And they showed uh, remarkable short-term benefits of weight loss and metabolic improvement that were sustained um, for over a year. So we do have this type of data out there and, of course, a lot of observational and empirical evidence, too. And I can't share it with you now, but I'm involved with a trial that includes over 400 diabetic patients. And we're showing absolutely remarkable effects uh, at, at three and six months uh, showing reversal of the diabetes as measured by A1C in the vast majority of those patients while they're getting off medication, while they're losing substantial amounts of weight. So it's truly remarkable. And diabetes is just one of many chronic diseases that I think we'll find uh, that is amendable to a ketogenic diet. And uh, and so I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this slide, but I want to at least paint this picture that there's tremendous interest in the research and medical community on ketogenic diets. You just heard about McArdle disease, which is really fascinating to me, but also um, some of the more common chronic diseases like cancer. And I think you heard a talk yesterday about that. That's super exciting. You know, we don't have a lot of randomized clinical trials today. There's certainly some underway. But I tell you, all the footprints in the sand are really lining up to indicate that we're going to see some positive effects um, in the next few years in some of those trials. The basic science, 
the rationale, the animal studies all look really good. Same for some, some of the neurological disorders, so there's a lot of interest in that. There's a big uh, international conference in BAMP coming up in September, all on ketogenic diets in neurology. So we've known they are amazing at protecting kids with intractable seizures. From uh, That's been more or less known for 100 years. What's newer is there's a lot of interest in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, uh, and I think, again, like cancer, there's a lot of good basic science and animal work supporting that, but you know, we do have to stay tuned to some of the clinical trials come in. So this is a really um, emerging uh, area that I think we're going to continue to make discoveries in over the next decade. Hey guys, I've been working on getting an affordable blood ketone meter for many months now, and now I'm happy to introduce to you the smart meter. Go to bestketonetest.com to pre-order the most innovative technology in ketone testing to ever hit the marketplace. This is set to change the paradigm in blood ketone testing forever. The smart meter will test ketones, blood glucose, and total cholesterol, and immediately give instant access to testing blood ketones to so many more people who could never afford to test before. The smart meter is set to release on Tuesday, July the 25th. 5th, 2017, but right now we're giving you a great incentive to order and stock up on these ketone strips. For each vial of 50 blood ketone strips that you purchase before July the 25th, 2017, we're going to give you an extra $10 off the already low price of $75 using the coupon code UNLIMITED at checkout. That comes to just $1.30 per strip. Plus you get free shipping in the U.S. and standard shipping rates worldwide. This is by far the very best deal you will find on blood ketone testing anywhere and we're so happy to be bringing this exciting news to you today. While you're at bestketonetest.com, pick up some blood glucose test strips for 50 of them for $25 and coming soon you'll be able to test total cholesterol with a test strip. So again it's called Smart Meter. Head on over to bestketonetest.com and get your Smart Meter today and don't forget to use the coupon code unlimited to get an extra $10 off each vial of 50 blood ketone test strips that you purchase prior to July the 25th, 2017. Bestketonetest.com. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I really missed when I started this low carb thing way back in 2004 was baked goods. You know, like a muffin. There's just something about that cake texture that's awesomely satisfying to hit the spot. But up until now, it's been off limits on my low-carb, ketogenic lifestyle. So I was psyched a few weeks back when I first discovered a brand new product called Nush. That's Nush, kind of like Nosh, but with a U. Nush cakes are not like so much of the other low-carb stuff already out there, partly because of their wonderful cakey texture. They're not tough or dry or chewy. They're just really flavorful cakes. Nush cakes also happen to be certified organic, certified gluten-free, and super low in sugar and carbohydrates with just two to three net carbs per cake. The Nush people sent me samples of their flavors, including banana nut, lemon poppy seed, cocoa, and carrot spice. I liked the banana nut one the best, but I really like all of them, and I think you will too. Go to nushfoods.com and be sure to enter the coupon code JIMMY at checkout to get 20% off your first order. Again, that's nushfoods.com for the best tasting low-carb baked good you'll ever taste. Nush Foods. They're back and better than ever at JimmyLovesFBomb.com. They are the F-Bomb company. Fat is smart fuel. They have made some incredible products for the ketogenic community, and they make keto easier. They have products that include coconut oil, macadamia nut oil, house blend, MCT oil, olive oil, avocado oil, macadamia nut butter with sea salt, macadamia nut butter without salt, coconut butter, macadamia nut butter blend. They also have salted chocolate macadamia nut butter. These are all available to you now at jimmylovesfbomb.com. And if you head on over there now and you use the coupon code JimmyLovesFBomb, 
They'll give you 10% off of your first order. JimmyLovesFBomb.com So a lot of my interest has been more in prediabetes and understanding cholesterol, lipoprotein metabolism, and a lot of the cardiometabolic uh, risk factors associated with, with diabetes. And just to sort of sum that up, um, it's very clear that low-carb diets hit all these markers um, to a greater extent than low-fat diets. And this is just a summary slide to show lipids get better, glucose, insulin sensitivity gets better, even saturated fat levels go down, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. And this is one of many studies we've conducted over the last two decades. And we've done a lot of work with inflammation. Ketogenic diets inherently are anti-inflammatory when you formulate the diets correctly. So a lot of it, pro-inflammatory cytokines, adhesion molecules go down on a ketogenic diet. We've shown postprandial lipemia improves. You process fat so efficiently when you're keto-adapted. Normally, your blood fat goes up, stays up. That's associated with a lot of problems, including vascular impairment. We show after 12 weeks of a ketogenic diet that that lipemic response is much, uh, much, much more uh, attenuated and almost flatlined such that you see improvements in vascular function associated with a ketogenic diet once you've adapted to it. Uh, I won't get you know, into detail on the lipoprotein changes, but I will make the point that cholesterol has been way oversimplified and way overstated in terms of its risk factor as a, for heart disease. And, and, and I'll just say that you know, we've known for a while that LDL cholesterol is a heterogeneic particle. And, I think there's very good evidence today that it's really the small, dense LDL particles that are most dangerous. These are the ones that penetrate the arterial wall. They're more prone to oxidation. They, they hang around the circulation longer. And a low-carb ketogenic diet, I would argue, is the most potent therapy, even more potent than statins, than any drug at decreasing these small atherogenic particles. And we've measured that in a, at least a half a dozen studies. So that's a big part of why I think a ketogenic diet is, is a, has a protective effect on atherosclerosis. But I want to just spend a little time on the saturated fat story because this has been the cornerstone of our guidelines. It's what a lot of the dietitians out there and the nutrition, and nutrition community really still hang on to this idea saturated fat's a problem. But the, the most recent analysis of dietary saturated fats involvement in heart disease really shows there is none. You can see three recent meta-analyses here, really large-scale studies or uh, analyses, meta-analyses in hundreds of thousands of patients, all show no association of saturated fat with heart disease. So why in the heck are we still recommending folks reduce foods that contain high saturated fat and miss out on all those great nutrients? It makes no sense. And in one of these uh, analyses, they, they... they took it a step further and they showed that if you decrease saturated fat and replace it with carbohydrate, it actually increases your relative risk of having a coronary event. And that's not some weird dietary flip-flop. This is what the average American person has done. They've decreased their saturated fat and added back more carbs. But it is a little more complex than that. There's a, there's a, a, a large body of literature that consistently shows if you store more saturated fat in the body, that does increase your risk of having a heart attack or having heart disease. So accumulating saturated fat is not good, but eating it, no correlation. Saturated fat levels in the body also correlate with prediabetes and diabetes. And again, there's a lot of studies here. I could show you a dozen studies. This is very consistent. So it's not good to be storing saturated fat. So this led us down a path to want to understand what was happening on a ketogenic diet to saturated fat metabolism because, of course, people were eating more saturated fat. So this is a a study in pre-diabetics where we fed them a low-carb or a ketogenic diet, and I'll just point your attention to the saturated fat levels. So the low-fat had 12 grams. The ketogenic diet had three times as much saturated fat. And this was the first study where we measured saturated fat in the blood and remarkably showed that despite eating more on the ketogenic diet, it actually went down in the blood. And so we scratched our heads and like, okay, well, this is a little paradoxical, but of course it makes perfect sense, right? Uh, I just told you that one of the most profound metabolic adaptations to a ketogenic diet is your body switches over to burning fat. And that's exactly what happens here. The body burns saturated fat. It actually 
prefers to burn saturated fat. So the levels go down even though you're eating more. And the other part of it is you make less saturated fat. That conversion of carbs to fat results in palmitic acid, which is a saturated fat. So, you know, we were, you know, we felt we had a good explanation for this, but we confirmed this in two other studies, in feeding studies, in under weight loss and weight maintenance conditions. And so this kind of leads us to this paradigm of saturated fat, where if you eat saturated fat, and who doesn't enjoy a nice marbled steak here, right, where you got a nice dose of saturated fat? Problem is, most people eat the, you know, the, the starch that comes with the meal, so the potato, the rice, the bread. And in that case, you're, you know, if you're insulin resistant, you're going you're gonna to end up storing a lot of that saturated fat because you know, your body's not good at burning it. And in that scenario, you're gonna, that saturated fat may be associated with undesirable health outcomes. It's not really the saturated fat that's causing it. It's the insulin resistance and the carbs, though. You could eat that same steak, even add some steak butter to it, but ask the waiter, hey, hold the potato, give me a non-starchy vegetable. Now you're under a completely different metabolic state. Insulin's lowered. In a, if you're keto-adapted, you're now oxidizing a lot of that saturated fat that you're consuming. Saturated fat levels would be low in the blood still, and this whole metabolic state would be favorable for preventing disease. So the point is, any effect of dietary saturated fat has to be considered in the context of the carbs that come with it. And so the effect, saturated fat metabolism is highly dependent on the carbohydrate level or the carbohydrate load and that person's level of insulin resistance or carb tolerance. So we aren't what we eat. Uh, we should change that to, to, to something like you are what you save from what you eat. Okay, so that's just, I really, I, I, I wanted to give you a little background more on just keto adaptation from a health perspective. And I want to now transition into the performance side of it because, yes, we can reverse diabetes and have a positive effect on health. Uh, but um, it, it's a, maybe a little more of a stretch to say this type of diet would be beneficial for an athlete or even ideal for an athlete. But it turns out that may be the case in some circumstances. Um, and a lot of this um, is heresy, as I was saying. You know, the carb supremacy still rules today uh, as, uh, you know, this idea that if you don't consume carbs, your performance will tank. But, you know, the real pioneer in this area was Steve Finney, who published a study in the 80s. There is no publishing studies in the 80s on ketogenic diets. So Steve was really ahead of his time. He adapted a group of very high-level cyclists to a ketogenic diet, fully expecting their performance to go down the, down the tubes. Uh, instead, he, he was quite surprised to find that performance wasn't affected at all. This was a very well-done study uh, where uh, they fed these athletes for four weeks a ketogenic diet, so compliance was great. Time to exhaustion was unchanged. Some variability between participants here. But the remarkable um, metabolic adaptation here is in the respiratory exchange ratio, where he showed during this exercise test, these keto-adapted athletes um, were burning almost exclusively fat based on this RER of 0.72, versus before the diet, they were burning a mix of carbs and fat. So this this was out there. It was published in a in a in Metabolism, a really you know pretty prominent journal, but nobody paid attention to it. So it's been living in the shadows for what forty years now, and thirty five years, uh, and uh, and so interestingly, though nobody's refuted it either. Uh, it's it's just kind of sit out there and people ignore it. Until now, though, uh, we do have a resurgence in this idea of, you know, athletes may not be needing all the carbs they're consuming. And I think it's worth mentioning Tim Noakes here, who's been, in my mind, a real pioneer in sports nutrition, highly prolific scientist. I, I, I don't even know, four or 500 papers probably on his resume. And, you know, most of his career, he was studying carbohydrates and touting the virtues of carbohydrates as evidenced by his famous book, The Lore of Running, that was regarded as the Bible for athletes. And it's only in the last few years that, that Tim has really done a complete 180-degree turn on his thinking. 
And part of that was because of his own personal experience. He um, was quite an accomplished athlete himself, uh, having, um, having run several ultra marathons, and despite still being incredibly active, developed diabetes, which I could only imagine was incredibly frustrating to a very intelligent, prolific scientist like, like Dr. Noakes. And that, I, that turned him on to the low-carb approach, and he's essentially put his disease into remission and was able to, you know, to have more energy and continue his, um, you know, his activity levels. And this is just, you know, he's been on now a crusade throughout South Africa where he's, where he's located um, and really uh, across the, the world. And so um, I, I think, you know, Dr. Noakes is just an incredibly gracious scientist uh, because uh, unlike many scientists who get enamored with their own ideas and hypotheses, he admitted to all the people who read his articles and books that he was wrong. And you just rarely hear a scientist you know, admit that. So I just have the most respect for, for Dr. Noakes. And so this is largely a grassroots sort of bottoms-up movement. Um, you've got a lot of athletes on their own volition uh, and you'll hear more about this from Peter Defty in the next talk, that have abandoned their, their high-carb diets in favor of a low-carb uh, eating pattern. And this is one, uh, Tim, uh, uh, Tim Olson, who is a, an incredible ultra runner. Uh, you can see here crossing the finish line of the Western States Endurance Run in 2012, and I happened to be at that race with several of my uh, laboratory. We were trying to convince some of these guys to let us draw blood and collect some data, and they were, they were uh, actually, we found a few. We convinced them to stay even for two or three days after the race and let us look at recovery, too. Uh, but Tim won this race, uh, and not only won, set a course record by over half an hour. Now, you probably can't see the numbers there, but he won in the time there is 14 hours and 46 minutes. So this is an absolute brutal run that I can't imagine why anybody would race, but maybe Peter can enlighten us because he's finished this multiple times. But this is, this is really uh, challenging the, you know, the, the capacity of the human to, to exercise, and Tim is doing this on a low-carb approach and came back the following year and won too. Not quite as fast, but it was one of the hottest uh, uh, events in, in history for the for the run. And you know, Tim is just one of, of many um, highly functioning keto-adapted athletes. Uh, Zach Bitter may be up there at the top of the list. He's a phenomenal guy and switched to a low-carb diet probably about four or five years ago. And he's currently the record holder for the time for a 100-mile distance uh, run on a track and finishing in just under 12 hours. And I think he went on in that, in that record-winning event to set the 12-hour distance record as well. So he kept running and ran a little over 100 miles uh, in that case. But Zach is, um, totally attributes the diet to his, uh, uh, his success, that it allows him to train harder, recover faster, and is very outspoken about that. And just uh, one other example here, Mike Morton, who uh, perhaps is one of, regarded as one of the greatest ultra runners of all time, was very successful in his 20s kind of went dark for uh, a decade, but reemerged in his late 30s and early 40s to just be tearing up the ultra community. Um, for example, running 100-mile races on back-to-back -back weekends, winning both races, setting a course record in one of those, uh, also set the record for 24-hour distance. So uh, that was about 172 miles and change that he ran. And he's doing all this on a ketogenic diet. So uh, again, just phenomenal feats of exercise performance. And it's more than ultra runners, though. This is clearly, I think, where you're seeing the most traction, but now you're seeing it trickle into team sports. The All Blacks won the championship uh, rugby. Uh, in, they're from uh, New Zealand. And, and there's been articles written about their diet and how they've removed a lot of the sugar and starches from their diet. I was quite surprised. I just moved to Ohio State in Columbus two years ago, and as soon as I got there, I was approached by the high performance director at the Columbus Crew. And it turns out they've been on a low-carb diet, and they're convinced that it's attributed you know, to, to the better health and performance of their, 
of their players, and they were in a championship last year as well, not doing so well this year. But they're very interested in taking it to the next level. I think it's very common in soccer and rugby throughout South Africa, Australia, and some of the Scandinavian countries. And you hear um, reports of other athletes and, and even teams using a low-carb approach. So this is something clearly um, challenging the, the conventional dogma that high-carbohydrate diets are required for optimal performance. So this kind of led us to you know, wonder, what's, what do these athletes look like? Because we have the Finney study, but no one's really studied keto-adapted athletes. And so we designed this study called FASTER, fat-adapted substrate oxidation in trained elite runners. And it was really this, had a simple study, a simple idea that, you know, we didn't have the resources to be able to fly people in from all over and keep them in our lab for, you know, for months to keto-adapt them. So we went after athletes that were already keto-adapted. With the help of Peter Defty, who was instrumental in finding a lot of these athletes, uh, we were able to recruit 20 athletes who were very high caliber, elite ultra runners, to come to our lab. I was at the University of Connecticut at the time and participate in some very invasive testing just to kind of give us the opportunity to peek under the hood and see what these keto-adapted athletes look like. And so we published the first of these papers in Metabolism um, several months ago. But I'll take you through the study um, and some of the key results that we have so far. So as I said, we had 20 athletes. 10 of them were low-carb, keto-adapted. 10 were high-carb, traditional, you know, high-carb athletes. We, took very, we were very careful to match them carefully. So they were same age, same body size, even the same VO2 max. So they had the same, you know, the same engine. They were all performing at a high level. So they're all elite. So they're matched on their performance as well. So the only difference is really their habitual diet. And these keto-adapted athletes have been on a low-carb diet for at least six months. Uh, on average, it was over a year. And so they're eating less than 12% of their calories from carbs. So they're, they're very low-carb and truly fat-adapted. And, and so that's the main difference. Um, and again, I just want to point that out because they've, all these athletes have already made all the adaptations to training you could. They've been training for years and years and years, and they're at the top of their game. So I think it's fair to say all the differences we see are, are really truly tied back to the difference in diet, not due to training or any other real factors. So we had these guys for two or three days, and so we took them through a series of tests, and it was kind of like a hunter wanting to get every piece of meat and material <laughs> off a carcass. So we were like, let's get their muscle, let's get their fat. We collected their stool, we got their urine, we got their saliva, we got cheek cells, we got so much blood, we filled an entire ultra-low freezer. And I really worried that, you know, we're going to have to have these guys sign a waiver that you'll never speak of what we did to you <laughs> again. But honestly, every one of these guys was so gracious and so um, willing to come and go through all these procedures that uh, they left thanking us. And it was really, you know, a remarkable group of athletes. So uh, I'll just show you, first of all, we had them do a VO2 max test, a progressive uh, exercise test where we increased the intensity and measured their substrate use. And from that, we can determine their peak ability to burn fat. And so this is the, the 10 high-carb athletes. And I just, well, you know, because you're probably not used to seeing these numbers and these units, um, this is a very high level of fat burning. These high-carb guys are healthy, good, very good fat burners. So a, a level of 0.67 is a high level of fat burning, but it's also what you'd expect. In the literature, I'd challenge anyone to find a value higher than one gram per minute where a human has, has demonstrated they could burn more than one gram per minute of fat. And here's what we observed in the keto-adapted athletes. So every one of them was above one gram. And in fact, their peak fat burning was more than twofold higher than these already you know, really good fat burners in the high-carb group. And even the lowest fat burner there is higher than the highest fat burner in the... So this is just, you know, two discrete groups here in terms of their ability to burn fat. And that ability to burn fat, you know, extrapolates to uh, all different exercise intensities. So uh, it's not just at this submaximal level of exercise. Even 
at higher exercise intensities, these keto-adapted athletes are able to burn more fat. Now, we, the primary exercise test we did was a three-hour run on a treadmill, uh, and, and they, they looked at a, at a blank wall for three hours while, while we infused isotopes and, and took blood out of them. Uh, but you have to realize that three hours is a walk in the park for most of these guys. But still, to me, it was like, are these guys going to be able to make it? Or, but again, it, everybody finished this exercise protocol. And we measured their fuel use during this time. And you can see on the left, this is very typical that a high-carb athlete burns a mix, 50-50 mix of carbs and fat. What's more remarkable is the keto-adapted athletes on the right burn almost exclusively fat. About 90, almost 90% of their fuel use during this run is coming from fat and, and very little from carbohydrate. And we measured a lot of blood markers. I'll just show you a few. As you'd expect, their ketones were higher. And you get this elevation in ketones post-exercise, the Cortis-Douglas effect, it's called, the post-exercise ketosis. Glycerol is a, blood glycerol is a marker of adipose tissue lipolysis. So it's about twofold higher. And that's not surprising. These guys, these keto-adapted athletes are better at breaking down fat and, and delivering uh, and, and increasing availability of fatty acids, uh, primarily for skeletal muscle. Now, perhaps one of the most striking results and surprising results, not just in this study, but I would say even in my entire career, was the glycogen data. Uh, I fully expected glycogen to be compromised, not depleted, but Finney showed glycogen was about 50% lower in the keto-adapted athletes at rest. We show absolutely no difference. In fact, remarkably similar glycogen levels pre-exercise as well as post-exercise and even two hours into recovery, glycogen levels resynthesized to the same, at the same rate, even though they weren't given virtually any carbohydrate during recovery. And you can see the individual data. This isn't driven by a couple outliers. It's a very uniform response in the keto-adapted athletes. So, I mean, this is really a head-scratcher. And we, we have some ideas. I won't go into great depth here. But um, I think it's fair to say that there are really profound adaptations in glycogen metabolism that occur in the keto-adapted state. And we have some clues from these Iditarod sled dogs that they're, they're people have studied glycogen levels. And you think this 100-mile race is brutal. These dogs run 1,000 miles through harsh environment. Uh, and, and just the metabolic and physiologic demands on these animals is remarkable. They're really amazing athletes. But there's data showing that they thrive on a low-carb diet and they maintain glycogen levels as well. So there's, there's, there's some hints there, but, um, but there are definitely adaptations that probably take months, maybe even years, to fully develop um, that allow a keto-adapted athlete that's, that's consuming very little carbohydrate to maintain normal glycogen levels and, and even resynthesize glycogen levels, perhaps from lactate, perhaps from glycerol and other um, non-carbohydrate sources. Now, I won't go into depth here, but we've, we've done a lot of other analysis in this study that we haven't published. We, we looked at a whole transcriptome analysis from skeletal muscle. So that's just, um, it's a really amazing technology where we can look at, quantitatively look at gene expression of all known genes. And if you don't know how many genes we have as humans, it's about 25,000 or so. So we have data on 25,000 genes pre and post-exercise in these athletes. And there's a lot of genes that are different in the keto-adapted and the high-carb athletes. And a lot of them are related to fat oxidation and metabolism, but there's some other really interesting uh, functions of some of these genes as well. And so you can imagine, um, you know, this is like a fire hose in the face of data. So we're sorting some of this out, and hopefully we'll get a paper, a few papers out on that soon. We also did a metabolomic analysis in the skeletal muscle, and this is another really neat tool that allows you to look simultaneously at hundreds of different metabolites in muscle. And so we did this um, in the two groups. And we, we were able to identify 378 different metabolites within muscle, and about a third of those were significantly different between the low-carb and the high-carb group. So this is just kind of show you this to... Um, to give you an appreciation for what a robust stimulus the ketogenic diet is for changing 
metabolism and physiology, all the way down to the gene level and manifesting in, in really broad changes in metabolic profiles of muscle. And they're in areas that you'd expect in fatty acid oxidation, ketogenesis, and carbohydrate metabolism, and even amino acid metabolism. So we got to know these guys real well because we were talking to them for two days straight. And, and the high carb group was well aware too that you know, I think there's a movement out there um, you know, you know, to try low carb diets. So it wasn't too surprising to us that at least two of our athletes that we've stayed in touch with have subsequently, you know, from finishing our study, have switched their diet. And you can read through these quotes, um, you know, had very positive response to switching their diet. In both cases, um, you know, telling us that they had won races after switching from the high carb to the low carb diet. And I'll just show you this data because, uh, uh, you know, there's some debate and, and, uh, out there about whether or not these diets would be good for anaerobic athletes or strength athletes. And we had done a study many years ago with resistance training showing that a low carb ketogenic diet in combination with resistance training was the most effective, uh, treatment to reduce body fat and also improve metabolic health. So weightlifters can do this, and you heard from Jake Wilson and his group who've really um, been charging forward uh, in this particular area of ketogenic research. So there's a lot of reasons to consider a ketogenic diet. I won't go through these in detail. My point here is that it's not one mechanism. Ketogenic diets don't work like a lot of drugs through one receptor and some pathway. It's a highly pleiotropic stimulus that could be affecting health, recovery, performance, resiliency through a lot of different metabolic adaptations. And that's why this is, you know, it's not trivial. It's, it, this is complex stuff. I mean, we can simplify it. But um, there's a lot of things still yet to sort out here. But this is also just shows that if you think about things in a reductionist way, you're not going to get it. This is anything but reductionist. Um, this, this is a very profound stimulus that changes the body in very uh, diverse ways. Now, it's nice if we can enhance athletic performance, maybe help somebody win a gold medal or help an athlete do a, have a PR. But what really um, intrigues me and motivates me is what um, applications might be realized here for our military. So we're, we're currently conducting studies looking at keto adaptation with um, a high degree of military relevance, both physical, uh, enhancing their physical capabilities as well as their cognitive functioning and, and their ability to recover and cope with stress. And so that, that's exciting. And, and so this is just a, another slide to show that Keto adaptation affects physiology through multiple mechanisms. So again, I won't go through each of these, but uh, uh, again, this is a broad spectrum tool to improve health performance and, and recovery and resiliency. So in summary, uh, I, I think it's time we recognize carbs are the problem, not fat. It's overconsumption of carbs relative to a person's tolerance that's really driving a lot of chronic disease in this country, especially obesity and diabetes, but probably cancer and uh, heart disease and, and other, other chronic problems as well. And the corollary to that is low-carb diets are preferred. And I think you know, low-carb diets work great, but there is something unique about ketogenic diets, largely because a lot of the, what I've shared with you today about the, what we're learning about ketones. So I think ketogenic diets are uniquely potent at uh, counteracting insulin resistance and having a therapeutic effect. And I think there's a lot of applications here beyond restoring metabolic health, but also for performance and, and resiliency. So where do, you, you know, where do we go from here in terms of practicing low-carb diets? I mean, this is the art, really. And I think we're trying to develop some objective tools, but when you're working with yourself, or trying to figure yourself out what to, what level of carbs to eat or working with somebody else, that's tricky. 
Uh, I think the safe place is, hey, if you're in ketosis, then that's good. You're restricting carbs to a, the right level. But not everybody need, necessarily needs to be in ketosis. So you may define a, a well-formulated low-carb diet as one that keeps all the symptoms of metabolic syndrome at bay or one in which you're not converting carbs to fat or, or creating oxidative stress. So I'll leave you with, with this quote. It's a rather pessimistic view, but... Uh, and I hope we can, I guess the challenge to everyone is, let's not wait that long, okay? Um, we're all going to live longer anyway, so even if that's the case, we'll be all right. So thank you very much. Coming up next time on the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have the 2016 Low Carb USA lecture from Jane Bullitt. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time.